Hello and welcome to Shades of Murder, a podcast where I share and discuss tales of true crime, mysteries, and all things dark and macabre. If you eat plain dream shades of murder like me, then welcome, my kindred spirits, to your new podcast home. If you enjoy the show and would like to support it, please follow, subscribe, and share with others you know so I may present more stories to you and we can all embrace the love, the darkness together. Please be forewarned that each episode contains specific and at times very graphic and disturbing details of the case and may not be intended for all audiences. I wanted my first episode of the new year to be a reminder of why I earned a degree in criminology and criminal justice and reflect on why I created the show. I believe that the true crime genre should go far beyond sharing and discussing stories of crime and murder. It is important to me as a podcaster who presents stories about people's deaths that there is a purpose in sharing them and that the gross injustices of our system are exposed. This is the case of Ronald Kitchen and the Midnight Crew of Chicago. Around 3 a.m. on the morning of July 27, 1988, in the southwest side of Chicago, a neighbor noticed flames flickering across the street at the Sebulveda's residence and immediately called 911. When the fire department and the police arrived at the property, now ablaze, they discovered the bodies of five victims inside. In the front bedroom laid the nude body of 26-year-old Deborah Sepulveda, the bodies of her two young children, three-year-old Peter Jr. and her two-year-old daughter, Rebecca, were holding hands together on the bed. In the rear bedroom, 30-year-old Rosemary Rodriguez, the live-in babysitter for the Sepulvedas, and her three-year-old son, Daniel, were found lying together on the bed. Upon the initial inspection of this tragic scene, the fire was believed to have been caused by arson. Fire Department Battalion Chief Michael Murphy reported to the media that there were individual fires set in each room where the bodies were located. The police later informed the press that the first autopsy conducted strongly pointed to murder, but they did not reveal the cause of death. It would later be uncovered that four of the victims had died from asphyxia from being suffocated, and the fifth was strangled. Who was strangled versus suffocated was never revealed. If it had been... I think the primary target of this mass homicide would have been clear, and viable suspects could have been narrowed down. Both of the women were very well known, highly respected, and cared about by many in their community. They were teacher's aides, and one of them was the daughter of a Chicago police officer. This brutal murder of two young mothers and their three small innocent children became priority number one for the Chicago Police Department to solve. The kid's father, Pedro Silvero Sr., was away in Mexico on a business trip during the time of their deaths. Thomas Ramos Sepulveda Jr., who was Deborah's brother, resided within their attic, allegedly was returning from the radio station where he volunteered around 1.30 a.m. that night, but ended up turning around when he remembered he had left something behind. Their alibis must have been solid enough not to be closer looked at as suspects, if they were ever checked at all. Police Commander John Burge told the media they wished they had a suspect, but unfortunately, they did not. The Chicago Police Department was faced with a lot of pressure from the mayor and the terrified community to find the perpetrators of this heinous crime. Two weeks passed without any progress being made in the case. The media even released to the public the Chicago Police Department was offering a $2,000 reward 
for help in finding the killers. Then out of nowhere, a man named Willie Williams, who was currently incarcerated, heard about the brutal multiple slaying. From prison, he reached out to Officer Smith of the Chicago Police Department and informed him that he knew who had committed the crime. Williams claimed that two men, one who personally confessed to the killings to him, were behind the murders of Sepulveda, Ramos, and their three small children. He alleged that Ronald Kitchen, Marvin Reeves, and himself all worked for Jimmy Peoples, who was a big cocaine dealer on the south side of Chicago at the time. Williams said that the women who were killed were frequent drug users, and that on several occasions, he had driven the suspects to Deborah Sepulveda's home to deliver drugs and pick up money. Officer Smith then informed Cook County Assistant State Attorney Mark Lukanik of this information that was provided to him by the convict Willie Williams. Based on his word alone, Police Commander John Burge, Detective Smith, and Assistant State Attorney Mark Lukanik got a court order that transferred Willie Williams from the Vandalia Correctional Center to the Cook County Jail. Williams was placed into police protection, and the prosecution approved a court order to give law enforcement the right to listen in on the phone calls of the two suspects. From his monitored jail cell, Willie Williams called Ronald Kitchen and Marvin Reeves an obsessive amount of times, 36 calls over two weeks. However, nothing came from this wiretap, and instead, police elected to find and arrest them on suspicion of auto theft, a crime that was not even linked to the murders. There was no physical evidence linking either of the suspects to the crime, nor had police successfully obtained any information from the informant's incessant calls over 10 days. On August 25, 1988, Ronald Kitchen, only 22 years old at the time, and a devoted father to his two-year-old little boy, was shocked when the police confronted him on his way home from buying cookie dough and milk for his son. He was initially informed that he was being arrested on suspicion of auto theft, but to not worry, and he would likely be out of the station within 45 minutes. Then suspicion of auto theft turned quickly into his being charged with a brutal mass murder. Ronald Kitchen was not by any means a stand-up citizen at the time of the crime. He was not innocent of any wrongdoing, knew the victims, and he had a criminal past. He was a known drug dealer who had recently been busted for having 700 grams of cocaine in his house and was likely facing a few years in prison when he was arrested for the fivefold murder. However, selling drugs does not equate to being involved in murder. He hoped to turn his life around, and the same day he was arrested, he had communicated to his mom that he was done with selling drugs. He wanted to focus on building his gaming room business full-time, especially since he had a two-year-old son now, and his girlfriend was again with child. His arrest was solely based on this aforementioned tip from Willie Williams. Williams claimed that over two different phone calls with him, Ronald Kitchen had confessed that he and his accomplice Marvin Reeves, while at the ladies' house to get back their $1,200 or so in drug money, had committed the murders and burned the house down to cover up the crime. There were no phone records to verify that the two men had even talked 
much less a confession to the murders have been made. Williams initiated contact with Ronald Kitchen 36 times during the period of the 10-day wiretap, yet they failed to hear anything of an incriminating nature. The only evidence that led Ronald Kitchen to be detained for almost two years in jail and later face multiple murder charges in a criminal court was his signed confession. Once Ronald Kitchen was taken into custody at Chicago Police Area 2 Station, homicide detective Michael Kill, along with an anonymous high-ranking officer who had deliberately torn off his name tag in front of him, began to beat Ronald Kitchen down into signing a full confession. These two police officers detained and interrogated Ronald Kitchen for over 16 hours. While this young man was detained on charges with only hearsay as evidence, the Chicago police subjected him to unbearable abuse and torture all night long. They had him handcuffed, chained to a loop in the wall of the interrogation room. There, the officers beat him in the face, back, chest, and in his groin with their fists. They kicked him in the back, in his ribs, and his groin. When Ronald Kitchen requested to call his lawyer, a different detective picked up the phone and hit him on the side of the head with the receiver. Detective Smith, who was the officer first contacted by Willie Williams regarding Kitchen and Reeves as suspects, also engaged in the torture of Ronald Kitchen. He struck him in the genitals with a blackjack and slammed a phone book at his head. They flashed Ronald Kitchen with lights, followed by interspersals of being left in the dark. This is a well-known tactic used on prisoners of war. This man was not provided with food or water and was denied the use of a restroom, all of which are fundamental citizen rights while being detained. Ronald Kitchen was placed in a whirlwind of blinding lights, disorienting darkness, and incessant kicking, hitting, and punching by those who dared wear the badge of law and authority all night long. These officers verbally assaulted him over and over again with racial slurs, repeating to him, and I quote, You just don't know how to do what we say to do. After 16 grueling hours, he was handed a confession already prepared for him by Assistant Cook County State Attorney Mark Lukanek, which he signed. Ronald Kitchen revealed to Judge Richard J. Fitzgerald at his first court appearance that he had been tortured by officers into giving a false confession. The judge noted Kitchen's obvious physical injuries and ordered that he be transferred to a hospital. There he was treated for trauma to his testicles and other various injuries to his body. However, the obvious abuse and torture inflicted by the hands of Chicago police did nothing to help Ronald Kitchen at trial. State prosecutors presented to the jury that the murders were triggered by drug money that was owed to Ronald Kitchen and Marvin Reeves. As to why they also murdered the children? Prosecutor Enath stressed that it was to send a message to the community that if they didn't pay their debts to them, they and their families would suffer. That the jury bought this nonsense makes me question their gullibility. 
First of all, most offenders, including drug dealers, burglars, and many involved in organized crime, do not kill children, period. They often refuse to even murder women. The Mexican cartel and the Japanese Yakuza have been known to be exceptions to this rule. That the prosecutors painted this scene of two drug dealers, one, mind you, who had a toddler of his own at the time, would senselessly murder three small children, none of whom were old enough to be eyewitnesses to the crime, I find just ridiculous. That the amount of the debt for cocaine was a measly $1,250 makes this narrative even less believable. On September 19, 1990, based upon the sole testimony of prisoner Willie Williams and the forced confession tortured out of Ronald Kitchen by Detective Kill and the then-anonymous officer, this young man's life was blown with the greatest of injustices. This case ignited a degree of fear and anger within the communities, which placed intense pressure on law enforcement to find and convict a guilty party. This led to a higher likelihood of conviction and being subjected to the death penalty. A jury composed of predominantly white jurors convicted Ronald Kitchen, a young African-American man, on five counts of first-degree murder. Later, Judge Vincent Bintavanga sentenced the young father to death for these crimes. It had never been revealed to the defense counsel that the state's informant Willie Williams whose accusation was the only source of evidence the prosecution had, was given financial compensation and freed from prison for providing his testimony to the state. It would be four years after he was sentenced to death that Ronald Kitchen would be in an appellate court to present the injustices done to him. In the 1994 appellate case, People v. Kitchens, it would be contended by the defendant that the state had engaged in intentional racial discrimination. In the 1986 court case, Batson v. Kentucky, the Supreme Court established that race and gender could no longer be a deciding factor in jury composition. Through their exercise of peremptory challenges, which allows for the prosecution to dismiss potential jurors on any basis they want without having to give a reason or explanation, this law was violated. It was revealed how the prosecution had excused six African Americans out of the 12 jury dismissals it had used. Such action most likely stems from the long-held belief by many prosecutors that an African American juror will be more sympathetic towards the defendant of their own race, and therefore they would be less likely to convict Ronald Kitchen of the homicide charges. Various surveys and polls conducted on the death penalty have also shown that where white people have conveyed as high as 70% support for the death penalty, only 40% of the African American population supports it. Now, given how African Americans overrepresent those on death row compared to their percentage of the population, this is not very surprising to me. I think it also exposes how the white population makes up an abnormally high percentage of those racial groups who resort to the most extreme acts of violence. All one has to do is research which race comprises the vast majority of serial killers and mass murderers to see that the evidence supports this. 
Now, peremptory challenges were initially established so that both sides, that is the prosecution and the defense, assist in forming the most balanced jury selection. Peremptory challenges are designed to allow the attorneys to strike six citizens each from the jury selection, which they believe for one reason or another to be biased and could cause harm to their case. Neither side has to offer an explanation or reason for getting rid of the specific juror. The exception to this is if a prima facie argument is made, which inserts so that a challenge was made in an act of racial, ethnic, or gender discrimination. This is distinct from challenges of cause, which is when the opposing side can argue that a person is not appropriate to sit on the jury based on a personal reason, such as they were a co-worker or a neighbor of the defendant or the victim. In the criminal trial of Ronald Kitchen, a potential juror by the name of Marie Shorter was excluded even though she shared the exact same characteristics that five of the 12 jurors did, except that she was African-American. As communicated by Charles Ogletree, the esteemed Harvard Law professor, activist, and author, contrary to what the Supreme Court's decision in Batson v. Kentucky was meant to establish, The legal profession does not view an attorney as being irrational to discriminate against potential jurors with reason to gender or race. These factors combined help to explain the purposeful, minuscule amount of African-American jury representation by the prosecution, who was openly pursuing the death penalty against the defendant. There is also no current legislation that entitles a defendant to have a jury be representative in whole or even partially composed of their own race. This was established because doing so can lead to even more prosecutorial and judicial racial discrimination through jury selection. Although the Supreme Court upheld the initial decision to sentence Ronald Kitchen to death and found no support for his claim of racial discrimination, one of the dissenting judges disagreed. In his opposing statement, he addressed how less than a third of the defendant's jury had been African-American, and half of the peremptory challenges exercised had been against potential African-American jurors. In his initial trial, the defendant Ronald Kitchen even testified to the court that while he was handcuffed to the walls of the interrogation room, the police officers repeatedly hit and kicked him, received blows to his chest, his head, and his groin. The defendant's cousin, Eric Wilson, who was initially brought in for suspicion of possible involvement, testified that he also was kicked in the groin by the police officer. He told the court how he could hear his cousin Ronald screaming out in pain while in custody. Later, it would be discovered that the once anonymous high-ranking officer, who along with Detective Kill, had tortured the suspect into giving them a signed confession, was none other than Commander John Burge. When John Burge rose up in the ranks of Chicago's police department in the early 1970s, this former Vietnam War captain became the instigator and promoter of the torture, abuse, and unspeakable acts of violence that were perpetrated against more than 100 African-American men and women while in detainment and during interrogation Known as the Midnight Crew, John Burge, in addition to police detectives under his direction, inflicted severe amounts of pain and psychological torture on young residents in Chicago to coerce confessions. 
the majority of which were later proven to be false. Ronald Kitchen was one of 10 African-American men who became known as the DR-10, or the Death Row 10, who were victims of the notorious Midnight Crew, a rogue group of police officers led by Commander John Burge. The DR-10 made up only a fraction of the number of innocent men who were criminal suspects who had been tortured into giving false confessions to Chicago Police Commander John Burge and his underlings, who were fellow officers of the Midnight Crew. Over two decades, from 1972 to 1991, the Midnight Crew applied physical torture and utilized various psychological means to coerce more than 120 African-American men into giving false statements of guilt. Documents retrieved from the Chicago Police Department unearthed horrendous, inhumane methods Commander Burge and his officers used upon these men. The midnight crew would perform mock executions, suffocate the suspects with plastic bags, and sometimes even use John Burge's own special black box, which was an electrocution device he had made and had used on enemy prisoners while serving in Vietnam. Almost all of the 12 law enforcement detectives involved in the abuse were white, and all victims were African-American. It was documented that the racial prejudice and explicit bias of the Midnight Crew accompanied the torture of these men with racist, derogatory slurs and insults. The exposure and eventual conviction of Commander John Birch was in large part thanks to the bravery, never-ending faith and resilience of Ronald Kitchen. Once he was placed on death row, he learned of the torture and manipulation that the other nine African-American men on death row had also suffered at the hands of Burge and his followers. Once they realized that they were all victims of the Midnight Crew, they secretly collaborated inside the prison walls. They worked together as discreetly as possible to bring these injustices to light and hence became known as the Death Row 10. In 2002, special prosecutors would conduct a four-year criminal investigation of now former police commander John Burge and the officers who answered to him. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations had run out on the crimes, and there was nothing they could do in a criminal court of law to pursue charges for the abuse and torture of these men. In 2003, the state of Illinois put an end to the death penalty, and Governor George Ryan commuted all death sentences to life in prison, including that of Ronald Kitchen. Once the evidence began to build up in the case against Commander John Burge and all those involved, the state attorney's office, which had previously represented John Burge in civil cases, was removed from all post-conviction proceedings. Attorney General Lisa Madigan was appointed to take over all prosecutions. Fortunately, she had integrity, unlike her predecessor, and she began to look closely at the cases prosecuted under Assistant State Attorney Mark Lukanik and the State Attorney. Then she dug into the case of Ronald Kitchen and from her findings, knew that justice had not been served. On July 7, 2009, Attorney General Madigan agreed to reverse the convictions against Ronald Kitchen and requested the judge 
to dismiss all charges. On July 9th, 2009, 21 years after being snatched off the street while buying milk for his baby, Ronald Kitchen was released after having been wrongfully convicted on a torture-induced false confession and the sole hearsay testimony of a shady prisoner, Ronald Kitchen was free. He was granted a certificate of innocence by the presiding Judge Bebo six weeks later, awarding him $199,000 in compensation from the state of Illinois. In June 2010, former Commander John Burge was convicted on two counts of obstruction of justice and one count of perjury, based on the lies he provided the court during the civil case against himself and his fellow officers back in 2003. During that civil trial, Burge denied any involvement in or having knowledge of any abuse, torture, or forceful coercion of suspects in custody at Chicago Police Department Area 2 Station. Evidence presented at his trial revealed Burge's direct involvement in the abuse and torture of several detainees, including placing plastic bags over their heads, shocking them with his little black box, and putting loaded guns to their heads. But again, these crimes had passed the statute of limitations and no charges could be filed against him for these actions. However, he could be held liable for lying under oath, and the judge sentenced him past the recommended guidelines. On January 21, 2011, the now-disgraced former commander John Burge was sentenced to 54 months in prison, which is a little over four years, followed by three more of supervised release. In his 2011 case against John Burge and his fellow conspirators, Ronald Kitchen pledged a 12-count complaint, which included many participants within the police department, city officials, the state attorney, assistant state attorney, the mayor of Chicago at the time, and the city of Chicago itself. In his specific complaint made against assistant state attorney Mark Lukanek, Ronald Kitchen alleged that he assisted the police during his interrogation and helped to coerce him into making a false confession. Ronald Kitchen claimed that ASA Lukanich was fully aware of how he was being tortured and later proactively suppressed any evidence of the abuse. His evidence of this was how Assistant State Attorney Mark Lukanik was in the vicinity of the interrogation room where Ronald Kitchen was handcuffed. He screamed several times while being tortured, which was easily within hearing distance of Lukanich. Lukanich even entered the room on two separate occasions where he could visibly and clearly see physical signs of abuse. Due to this, ASA Lukanich was denied prosecutorial immunity for Kitchen's claims of conspiracy and the intentional infliction of emotional distress. Why is this so shocking, you may wonder? Well, for those of you who do not know the powers of the prosecutor, they are deemed to be outside of prosecution themselves for any wrongdoing against the defendant. That is, they cannot be held liable or responsible for unethical behavior on their part in the courtroom. 
prosecutors cannot be sued in a civil or criminal court for any actions related to their position as the prosecutor, no matter how shady, unscrupulous, and downright immoral they may be. This includes prosecuting an individual whom they know to be innocent, withholding evidence that could potentially help the defense, or even creating evidence of guilt that is not legitimate. This is a judge-mandated law that was established in 1976 in the case Embler v. Pactman. The Supreme Court created this absolute immunity from prosecutors being sued, ironically, to serve the public's trust and help to reinforce that the criminal justice system is upholding its role. Unfortunately, the reality of what this law does has shown to be quite the opposite. Instead, this legal shield from being sued empowers some prosecutors to ignore the constitutional rights of defendants with the primary goal of winning a conviction. Since Assistant State Attorney Mark Lukanik's actions were outside his position as the prosecutor, this immunity was null and void. When Mark Lukanik entered the interrogation room, he asked Ronald Kitchen to speak with him. But Ronald Kitchen wanted to speak with the lawyer instead. His constitutional right to an attorney was blatantly ignored by the assistant prosecutor, who left the room promptly after Kitchen's request, and then the physical and psychological abuse at the hands of law enforcement officers continued. Ronald Kitchen was beaten down in spirit, mind, and body so badly that the police at last got their wish and he decided to make a statement. This is when Mark Lukanik came back into the interrogation room. Officer Kill repeated the sequence of events with a quintuple murder, to which the attorney asked Kitchen if that was accurate, and he said yes to each part. Mark Lukanik next drafted the confession and had Ronald Kitchen put his signature on the document. However, Ronald Kitchen admitted to being at the crime scene, but never admitted to having killed any of the victims. During a pre-trial motion, Ronald Kitchen had attempted to have his confession suppressed, but both officers Kill and Smith, in addition to State Attorney Lukanik, swore in court that not only had Ronald Kitchen confessed of his own free will, but that he was not abused or tortured into doing so. It was later revealed how Mark Lukanek had held meetings with Willie Williams to ensure that his story fully aligned with Kitchen's statement. Despite the fact that the defense was never privy to these meetings, there were promises given to Willie Williams for his testimony, including money, and he was released early from prison. There was also exculpatory evidence which had been suggested by others that had been withheld from the defense. Exculpatory evidence is information that is beneficial to the opposing side, which may excuse, justify, or completely absolve the guilt or fault of the defendant. In this case, there was circumstantial evidence that indicated the possibility that victims were killed by a member of their family. Suspects included the brother-in-law and a lover of one of the women. The primary suspect, though, was Deborah Sepulveda's husband, since an eyewitness reported to have seen him at the house the night 
all five were slaughtered. This is absolute madness to me how it is legally allowed, although frowned upon, for a prosecutor to withhold such evidence that would provide the jury with information that proves the defendant cannot be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I find it utterly disgusting that people in such positions of power abuse their role for their own agenda, care more about their conviction record, and fail to represent truth and justice. Our society, especially the media, often hypes up the role of the prosecutor, glorifying them to the point of being perceived as heroes or heroines of law, but the truth is far less honorable. It is easy to villainize the defense attorney as they are often portrayed as the sleazy lawyer who is willing to represent the scum of the earth, being rapists, child molesters, and murderers for money and fame. However, this is a stereotype and not a very solid one. I like to think that most people who pursue becoming defense attorneys versus working for the prosecution do it for the truth and justice in law. They believe in the constitutional rights of all individuals and will fight to uphold them no matter who the defendant or what charges they face. In many respects, defense attorneys deserve to wear the titles of seekers of truth and justice more than the state and federal prosecutors do. Ronald Kitchen also pointed to several public officials who took steps to cover up the abuse and torture he and so many other African-American males suffered at the hands of police commander John Burge and his fellow officers. He alleged that Mayor Daley, who was the state's attorney for Cook County between 1981 and 1989, had knowledge of the abuse and torture being inflicted on detainees since at least 1982. There were also many others involved in the conspiracy to hide this police abuse, including Leroy Martin, who was the commander of Erie 2 Detective Division, and was also the superintendent of police in Chicago between 1987 and 1992, and the police superintendent Gail Shines, who served in the role from 1998 to 2004. Specifically, all of these individuals collaborated to suppress a report done in 1990, by the OPS investigator Michael Goldston, which stands for Office Professional Standards, which revealed the systemic abuse of 50 suspects, which had been held in custody at Area 2. The report also addressed how the command personnel were not only fully aware of the abuse taking place, but encouraged the harm done to the detainees by engaging in the abuse themselves or failing to do anything to halt the actions of the officers. It also specifically called out John Burge and Commander Byrne as being the head instigators of this police violence. Then in 1993, the OPS reopened its investigation into this same police division, noting how several detectives were involved in acts of torture being implemented against suspects. As a result, Police Commander John Burge was fired on allegations of abuse. Police Superintendent Gail Shines conspired with others to hide these findings by keeping them inside her office between 1993 and 1998. Then once Hillard was promoted to police superintendent, he and Needham did what they could to overturn the findings by the OPS in the cases that were reopened. Ronald Kitchen went on to sue the city of Chicago, which agreed to settle the civil lawsuit for over $6 million in 2013. 
the same settlement was also given to Marvin Reeves. When Ronald Kitchen provided his statement to the National Police Accountability Project, he described how he was, quote-unquote, handcuffed to a metal loop on the wall of the interrogation room while enduring this abuse and torture for 16 hours by those who swore to protect and serve. On July 3, 2014, and yet one more slap in the face of justice, judges upheld a ruling previously made by a Cook County judge that allowed John Burge, who was now in prison, to keep his $4,000 a month pension. On October 2nd of the same year, he was released from a minimum security prison in North Carolina and sent to a halfway house somewhere near Tampa, Florida. Then on February 13th, 2015, his supervision was completed and he was free from home confinement. On May 6th, 2015, the City Council of Chicago publicly acknowledged and honored the victims of abuse and torture by John Burge and his midnight crew. They then signed into effect the quote-unquote Reparations for John Burge Torture Victims Ordinance, a $5.5 million reparations package that provides the victim and their families with resources to heal and better their lives, including free college education, job training, and psychological counseling. In the same year, several other incarcerated men who had been coerced and tortured by Burge's regime into signing confessions had their convictions thrown out. Because of the horrific suffering these innocent people endured at the hands and direction of John Burge, there has also been an increase in the exposure in the classroom with many teachers, including its history, within their public school curriculum. In 2009, the Illinois Torture Inquiry and Relief Commission was established to investigate cases related to John Burge's torture and abuse of suspects. In 2016, it was finally expanded to include its investigations into victims in Cook County who claimed allegations of police abuse and torture. The cases of innocent men and women thrown behind bars due to the coercion, abuse, and torture at the hands of law enforcement and by unethical tactics utilized by the prosecution continue to rise to the surface. The Midnight Crew, who were predominantly white cops, abused and tortured these African-American men with the goal of breaking them down physically and psychologically to the point that they would confess to the crime. Police Commander John Burge was clearly a sadist and a narcissist who believed that his badge empowered him beyond the law. These false confessions led to wrongful convictions of many innocent people, including at least 10 who were given the death penalty. This extreme abuse rooted in racism and violence continued to go on for more than 20 years. Many claims of abuse by prisoners were made, but no one listened or cared enough to do anything to change John Burge and his brutal, psychotic police order. This monster who abused his power and position as Chicago's police commander was a disgrace to the many decent and respectable men and women who don a police uniform. This case and his role in its injustice is the pinnacle of the racism and abuse that continues to taint the image of law enforcement in the United States and many other nations. 
What this man did makes it difficult to even call him a human. And the pathetic sentence he was given once his actions were revealed makes a joke out of our criminal justice system. He died alone at age 70 on September 19th, 2018 in Apollo Beach, Florida. Many people think that there is nothing anyone can do to persuade them or convince them to admit to a crime, especially murder, which they never committed. However, history has proven that false confessions are shockingly common in our criminal justice system, especially before the use of cameras during interrogation and specific legislation that makes certain methods and processes now illegal. There is a reason that torture is used as a method employed to solicit information from the enemy. It is a process to break people down in spirit, mind, and body so that they give in and tell you whatever they want to hear so that the pain and suffering ends. Imagine not being able to drink, eat, or use the restroom when you need to especially under the most stressful of circumstances. Now imagine having lights flashing and then being submerged in the dark. You're handcuffed to a wall, punched, hit with objects, suffocated with bags, and electrocuted. Most of us would not even understand what was happening to us. We would be terrified, beyond confused, and willing to do whatever it takes to make it stop. Now sign this letter and you can leave. That is the interrogation room. In Ronald Kitchen's book, My Midnight Years, he recounts how once it dawned on him that the prosecutor was corroborating with the police, he knew that his best option was to confess or he would continue being tortured and possibly die in the process. This was obvious to him when the prosecutor, Lukanik, entered the interrogation room to read him his Miranda rights 15 hours into being tortured and blew off his request to speak with a lawyer. Ronald Kitchen was under the belief that the obvious physical signs of abuse at the hands of the law enforcement officers while being interrogated and combined with his solid alibi and nothing terribly serious or violent in his criminal history would never lead to a trial, much less death row. This innocent man was incarcerated for 19 years of his young life, with 13 of them served on death row. His youth was stolen. His years with his child and its mother ripped away from him. His reputation soiled. His entire life destroyed by racism and perverse authority. To me... There is no way to make this injustice right. There is no amount of money that can make up for the fact that this man was tortured brutally into false confessing and lost more than two decades of his life thanks to the worst example of officers and human beings who helped to perpetuate this injustice. The only way there can ever be a semblance of justice in such a case if there was a way for it never to happen again. Unfortunately, although there are elements of interrogations put in place now to prevent this level of abuse, the way our criminal justice system is, 
false confessions and wrongful convictions will always exist. When officers are legally allowed to make up evidence to try to convince a suspect that they have more on them, when in reality they don't, in the hopes of eliciting a confession, there is no hope for this to stop. When a prosecutor can pursue criminal charges against someone they know to be innocent and not be held liable for these actions, there is no hope for this to stop. An entire reset of the system. The tactics detectives are allowed to employ and the wide parameters of justice and truth that the prosecution operates in must change. Thanks to the amazing students at the Bloom Legal Clinic at the Northwestern University School of Law, who directly worked on Ronald Kitchen and Marvin Reeves' cases, and many other nonprofit legal and civil rights organizations, these innocent men and women continue to be fought for, and their injustices represented and exposed. I sincerely hope that Ronald Kitchen and his loved ones have found some kind of peace and happiness in these years since he was freed. No one deserves it more than he and the innocent victims of police brutality and prosecutorial corruption. Thank you so much for listening to this tragic and infuriating case of Ronald Kitchen and the so many other men whose lives were destroyed by John Burge and the Midnight Crew. Knowing that there are so many innocent people incarcerated still from his torture and countless other legal injustices enrages me. But their stories are critical to share. They remind us of how much work needs to be done to our criminal justice system and why it is important that as a society, we are aware of what is happening under the false guise of truth and justice. Until next time, stay safe. Watch out for shades of murder. Happening in the streets, next door, and especially inside your own home. Shades of Murder was created, researched, written, and edited by Alita Dogma. Music courtesy of Pixabay by Ashraf Danielian. <laughs>